Hello and welcome to this, the 47th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Ogue-McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised you that we won't ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to put your money where your mouth is and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And the simplest way for you to go and do that is to go and buy yourself some theatre tickets. And there's never been an easier time. We're in the middle of the Dublin Theatre Festival at the moment. There's a whole heap of work going on all around the country. Put your hand in your pocket, keep the machine on the road, support Irish theatre. But, you know, if tickets are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, there are ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast in person, over a coffee, over a pint, at the interval in a show at the Dublin Theatre Festival, maybe. Go and share the link as a Facebook post or retweet the link on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, if you would, please. Uh, but also, they are all available uh, for streaming and direct download at riseproductions.ie they're also on podbean and acast and all those other podcasting services that you might like to use do go back and listen to the other episodes in this second series and indeed all 52 from the first series there's an awful lot of gems in there well worth a listen you can leave us a review on itunes if you would or simply click to rate us on their five star rating system and as ever you can follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at Rise Ireland and it has been a mercifully quiet week this week at Rise Towers I've been taking it nice and easy Um, after the madness of judging the Fringe Awards it's been really nice to kind of just you know take it easy for a little bit and just slow things down gather my breath and go right okay let's go and take it on had a brilliant time at the fringe i have to say so the guts of 30 shows out of the 77 that were eligible um some really impressive stuff obviously i wasn't able to talk about them during the judging process but now that it's all done uh, i can chat to any of you at any point you like about ones i really liked uh, obviously delighted to see brendan galileo do the the double bill of both the Bewley's little gem and the best performer award there was a little man called angus McAnally who eight years ago when he made fight night as part of his show in a bag did the double of the little gem and best performer so uh, i know what it can do for someone in terms of being a nice little springboard into the next little while so all best wishes to few and foley i'm sure that's a show that is going to travel and travel and travel but there was a whole load of great shows i think we did our best in as much as we possibly could to recognize uh, as many shows as possible we had eight and a half hours of deliberations to come to the awards settle it down to the shortlist long list first for us then shortlist of nominees and then the winners it was a job of work but i'm pretty happy with the job that we did and the results we ended up with so look that brings us to our guest this week and it is none other than the brilliant tom lane one of the finest composers operating in ireland at the moment and just an all-round brilliant guy so look let's get straight into it here he is the brilliant tom lane the wonderful tom lane joining me on the podcast hello my friend hello how are you i am very well indeed thank you so much for coming on let us go back to the very beginning and let's focus on music first, maybe, and when music comes into your life rather than when theatre comes into your life. Yeah. Um, all the way back, uh, <laughs> um, started playing violin when I was about four years old. Okay. And my brothers both played violin as well, my older brothers. And 
we just sort of started young, got going with violin and then playing in orchestras and things. And then started Is violin not yeah. the hardest one to start with, <laughs> um, though? Kind of. Um, well, it's, I started doing this, uh, there's this method of learning called the Suzuki method. Um, I've heard of this. Yeah, it's kind of an international thing. It started in Japan and um, the idea is that you start very young. And okay. You kind of treat it like learning a language or something. You kind of just repeat it a lot, and um, but it's kind of like a natural thing. You need to kind of learn by ear to start. To start really, kind of thing. yeah. Um, and it's quite good, um, and it was, yeah, it's the way I learned, and it was good for me. And now, interesting. Bad violin playing by a mm. child is mm. among the most painful sounds in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did it take you long <laughs> to progress from there? Well, I don't know. Maybe I never did. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess it just takes it just takes practice, and you. You learn to listen to what you're doing and it's it's a lot about kind of you have a kind of healthy posture and you don't strain your arms and that kind of thing and that using the the weight of your arms to make a good tone and things like that so yeah i mean it was a place to start and then um yeah they kind of added i started with on piano as well and then always did a bit of singing and then started doing a bit more singing in choirs i kind of always did that anyway um and so and then then picked up other little instruments along the way but it's mainly, and then, well, now I play um, viola rather than violin, really. That's um, a bigger one? Yeah, it's a slightly bigger one. It's kind of, it's the kind of, like, tenor register of the string family, so it's, like, in between a cello and a violin. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I play that in orchestras, and it's good fun, and, and I have a little string quartet as well. Amazing. Nice. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> um, so, the family generally was quite musical. Now, kind I, of. You're pretty goddamn good at what you do. Were the rest of the siblings kind of equally musical Um, or was it clear from early on that you had a particular leaning towards it? um, My parents uh, aren't particularly musical. They love music. Um, They don't do it professionally or anything. Uh, My mother's uh, actually very into like Baroque recorder playing now actually. Um, (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, so she she loves it. So yeah, I mean, music was around a lot when we were growing up. Um, My brothers, yeah, I mean, they, they also played like trombone and trumpet and stuff like that. Um, my middle brother, he was actually like a real kind of prodigy on the violin, and he, really? he almost became a soloist on it or something. But he became a mechanical engineer instead. Amazing. Um, so I, I just kind of, I think because I started playing the piano, I got more into the kind of composition side of things and kind of understanding how music works and harmony works. Because with a piano, you, you know, you can be playing more than one note at once, sure. and um, you'll be. And I just got kind of into studying chords and harmonies, progressions, counterpoint, that kind of thing, kind of really geeky stuff. But that's what it's all about, really. If your brother was, if it was looking mm. that there might have been a chance at, you know, soloist territory, is that the kind of thing where, you know, like to be the next Tiger Woods, you need to be going locked in a room from three, training yeah. like, you know, 12 hours a day. Is that, if it was that looking kind of down thing. that route? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it basically, if you want to be, like, especially if something like violin, because it's, there's so many violinists. Yeah. Um, you've got to practice, yeah, seven hours a day. You've got to go to music college and just commit your whole life to that. Um, so it was a route he didn't really want to go down. Sure. It wasn't something I was ever going to do as a sort of solo instrumentalist. Yeah. An instrumentalist. Um, I did, I mean, I did it, I ended up going to music college after university um, and being in the same environment as all those people who were kind of okay. um, studying the solo instruments and the, the piano and the violin and the um, flute and everything. But I was in it as composition. So now, you talked about your brother being, I'm not going to talk about your brother exclusively <laughs> for this interview, <laughs> Patrick, um, but you talked about him going into engineering. <laughs> yeah. This is the bit where I pretend to know things about music and say, you know, the, the, the line that people have about music being very mathematical a lot of the time. Is there any truth in that? And is that partly where the, the link up with kind of, you know, a, a punch on for engineering comes as well? I don't know. I mean... I tried to do maths at school. Um, <laughs> I tried to do it for A-level. And 
I wasn't particularly good at it, but I think I found that I just, I would have had to practice it a lot. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like playing an instrument or doing anything or playing a sport. You know, if you, you just have to put in the hours to, to do it, right? And I just didn't, didn't want to do it. I'd, I'd prefer to be playing the piano or like writing yeah. a piece or something. Um, if, now there is a satisfaction of getting like a maths equation right, but it's just, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. So I'm not particularly mathematical. Okay. And I don't think my music is, music is particularly mathematical. I think there'll be, there'll be types of music which you, you need that kind of brain to apply things to. Yeah. But the kind of thing, the kind of way I work is just kind of listening to stuff over and over again and, and then changing it a little bit until it sounds right. Okay. Which is kind of, especially with composition, you know, you can do that. You don't have to just do it first time. Yeah. Um, and you get, you get time to, to perfect things and work on things. And that's just how I work. It's just sort of a slow sort of grinding down of a thing to make it right until it works. I like it. Um, <laughs> so you talk about music college, but before that there was university. Mm. Um, what, did, what did you study at university? Um, I did music at university. Okay, um, so ex- for yeah. those of the yeah. uninitiated, yeah. the difference between going to university to yeah. music and then a proper music yeah. college? It would be very similar, for example, um, difference between going to um, drama college or going to university like say Trinity and doing a drama theatre studies gotcha. degree. So um, you would do, like in, like in a drama theatre studies, you might do some acting and some performing, but you'd also do the theoretical and sure. you'd do the history. Exactly the same with music. So um, my final, I did sort of final, eight final papers and about three or four of them were history and then there's analysis. I did composition, performance, orchestration, uh, choral performance as well, which is pretty cool. Um, so it was still a broad like spectrum of things yeah um, but it wasn't purely performing it wasn't purely composition which is great to have that um, breadth of things a little yeah. bit you know to find out about things and that was in Oxford so that's a cool, um, cool place to be and there's also so much music going on there as well like um, uh, orchestras and musicals with it like with it, I'd been there two days and I was already playing the orchestra for West Side Story and then I did, <laughs> you know, I did like three musicals in the first term and then I was like s- singing in musicals acting in plays and stuff it's just a great place to be to like try lots of things because there's lots of like hardworking slightly prolific people yeah and they're about 19 but they they're like 42 you know <laughs> it's a bit like trinity you know people are very confident people who um have a lot of time and energy um well they'd have a lot of time actually i don't know how they manage it but <laughs> um it was great yeah great place to be and learned a lot and had a great time and did a lot of things and then the transition mm. to full-on music and music college yeah and it's because i i'd done composition um more and more during the degree. I, I started when I was at school and then I did it during the degree. So then I was, you know, I was about 20 finishing, because you know, I started college at uh, university at 18, was finished by the time I was 21, it's just a three year course. So I wanted, I was like, I'm not really done with studying that yeah. yet. So um, applied to Royal Academy of Music in London, which uh, everyone said, you won't get into that, it's far too prestigious, but luck of the draw, <laughs> coming. Oh, you're brilliant again, <laughs> so but that's they okay. Had a, they had a spare place. So I got in, which was great, and um, I mean, it wasn't cheap, but it was, um, it was a time before the fees were as kind of crazy as they are now. Okay. So, um, and it was a, yeah, got to, got to live in London for two years, uh, living with some friends of mine from school, it was a really good time, and um, yeah, just being in that music college environment was really interesting, um, with incredibly talented people, and it's, it's more of a, it's, you're kind of going back to school in a way. It's, it's, like, it's like drama school in that, you know, you have to be there all the time. Yeah. Um, it's not like, you know, university, you can kind of come and go as you want, you miss a lecture, no problem, whatever. But um, music college, it's like, if you miss two classes this year, you are, you are expelled. Wow. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, 
which is incredible. Um, but you, you got to do great things, and we got to they got lots of guest composers, right. um, international ones as well, and we got to work with the um, musicians in the college as well. So it was great because it was part of their course so they they had to turn up and um, <laughs> play this like weird piece that we'd written for them for like six trumpets or something wow. um, and they had to turn up and play it well even though they probably didn't want to and we just got all these amazing musicians you know the best like, young musicians in the country playing our stuff for us which is fantastic and you learn so much from them as well man that's yeah. incredible so the focus yeah. then was on exclusively on composition yeah I mean the composition it was like kind of instrumental and vocal composition and I'd say predominantly for kind of concert type music, like a, like a sort of traditional thing where you might get commissioned to write a piece of music for a live performance by like an ensemble of an orchestra or a small group of musicians or choir or something. And then we did do other things as well. We did like some collaborations with like a film school, actually, that's quite cool. Oh, wow. and, um, Mount View, um, we wrote a score for um, some of their short films and for some animation projects as well. That was good. But... Um, there wasn't really, there wasn't anything with like live uh, theatre or anything like that. Okay. I mean, there's just a little bit of a crossover when we did things with singers and there's like more sort of theatrical type of vocal performance. Mm. But it's, it's not like for a play or anything like that. Um, but then like theatre was something I always like had a huge interest in. And until like, until I was about 21, I, something I did as an, like, as an actor, not as yeah. even like big parts, but I would do that in university as kind of, as like a hobby, you know, um, as a bit of a relief from just doing the music. Yeah. Um, like I remember did production of Antigone, which was fun. And we did Sondheim, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, um, a few other things. Um, yeah, and it's always, always really fun to do that. And then also like growing up, we're lucky enough to have a great theatre in Bristol, um, the Bristol Old Vic. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it's an amazing place and it's got an amazing history. It's like one of the oldest working theatres in the world, I think, something like that. Um, so just going to see plays, often they're really boring and stuff. I think they did a lot of Pinter and would go and see like The Caretaker and um, it's just, what is this? But um, it's great to get to know that and just like a funny anecdote is like, I think for my like 10th birthday or something, we, we did a backstage tour with my friends of the Bristol Old Vic. Wow. <laughs> that's not the traditional Bouncy yeah, Castle yeah. approach. I don't know why. It was, that's very uncool. Um, very middle class. But it was great, you know, you get to see like the costume department and sound department. Um, and I'd some, somehow that I ended up working in that world. It's amazing. Um, roundabout it. way. So, uh, yeah, full circle. <laughs> so, so when did the idea of combining mm. the love of music and the interest in mm. theatre, when did that start to come together? When did mm. the first opportunities arise? I mean, it's partly because... Um, I mean, I don't sound like it today, but I, uh, I also studied like singing. Yes. And I've never been like a full-time professional singer, but um, I did it as a second study in music college. And then I also I sang in choirs. I sang choirs at college. Sang in St Martin's in the Field in London, and then carried on training in, when I was studying in Berlin. And then here in Dublin, I was working in Christchurch Cathedral as a like a singer in the choir so anyway so singing is something I do and also like did a bit of like opera stuff yeah. you know um, we know we've done opera things together yes. um, so opera is something really interested in and love and interested in writing it and, and performing it and um, interpreting it and opera is one of those places where music and theatre really intersect you know and it's um, kind of the quintessential uh, traditional way in which you, you, you put music on the stage yeah. um, so that's one of the ways I was, I was interested in it and it's great, yeah, being in London, going to see operas, incredible, and in Berlin, so many operas. 
And then also, also I've been doing that, I've been doing plays, I've been doing music, not for theatre, I've been doing sort of operatic things. And then um, I had this opportunity to study in, in Germany. Right. Um, I got this scholarship, which was for Oxford graduates, Oxford and Cambridge graduates, and you got to study anywhere in Germany for two years, doing whatever you want. Um, that sounds pretty cool. Scholarship. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so I looked what was going on in Germany, and I found this um, place in Berlin called the University of the Arts, and there was a guy there called Daniel Ott, um, who is a Swiss composer, and he does a lot of things. Uh, it's called experimental music theatre, which is kind of... Um, a form, I guess it's mainly on the continent in Germany, France, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's kind of composing music, but in a theatrical way. Or, or kind of, it's like a composed form of theatre or something. Okay. So you might, get, you might get instrumentalists uh, playing parts on stage. You might, get, like, you might get like a pianist playing, but also kind of speaking and, you know, acting in some way. Uh, but it's usually kind of scored um, in a kind of musical notation rather than in a traditional like script or something. Okay. Like. Um, so I thought, wow, that's really fascinating. I want to f- learn more about that. We, we'd, we'd looked at it a little bit, little bit at college. Um, so I applied to study with him and got in and you know studied that while I was in Germany, um, which is you know completely it's really completely different from what I do now. But it was great to get to know it and um, it kind of I kind of learned then it wasn't entirely for me to do that kind of stuff, but I kind of took elements of it like. I, it was while I was there that I wrote um, the opera that became Flatpak, oh, yeah. which we did here in 2012. Um, and there's little elements of that. So, for example, in that, um, there's, there's a scene which is for a piano and a baritone. And the, the piano is like a character, like the pianist is a character. And he's like practicing scales in a room with the baritone there. Um, so it's kind of using that, you know, it's, he's... he's it's music, but he's also a kind of theatrical character. Um, it's a bit cheesy, but um, it works pretty well. And um, yeah, just, just taking elements of that experimental stuff in Germany and then putting it into stuff I write. Yeah. Is Berlin the coolest place in the world? <laughs> and, did, and is it the center of world culture? Or did you have a ball there? Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, um, it was God, nearly 10 years ago now, 2007, 2009. It was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to like all the operas I could go to. And plays, like just, you know, you see amazing plays. There's so many theatres and they're all doing like cutting edge stuff. Yeah. You've got like the Schaubühne and then there's the Gorky Tart and the Deutsche Tart and that kind of stuff. And because I was lucky enough to be able to speak German because okay. uh, my mum's German. Um, so that was handy. <laughs> I mean, it was part of the reason I wanted to go there. So you're seeing all this amazing theatre stuff, which is like, I don't know, completely, completely destroying, they're kind of destroying everything all the time and reinventing it. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You're trying to like catch up and think like, what are they doing? Um, and I was, I was like part of a youth theatre group in the Gorky Theatre and that kind of thing. And so we were seeing lots of stuff there and making our own stuff and devising stuff. So that was really fun, yeah. And it was, and, but then there's also all these other cool things in Berlin, you know, like clubs and places, great place to eat and amazing art to see and everything and great place to live and hang out. It was great. Um, I don't think I'd lived there full time, but okay. it was a great place to be at that time when I was only like 23 or something. So, <laughs> The idea that Dublin doesn't have an opera house, is that mm. mental to you? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it, you know, it has places, it has spaces where opera can be. Sure. Like the Gaiety or other theatres as well. I mean, it's a different, it's a different culture, a different like, context, you know. Um, you know, places in Germany and Italy, like opera's been part of like the kind of 
it's like a court culture or something, you know. It's a, it's, it's a very expensive thing to put on. You need lots of money behind it and um, need a certain, I don't know, class or group of people who are really into it and really want to go to it. Um, and for, for lots of different reasons, that it's just it's, it's a bit different here. Mm. You know, there's lots of other great things sure. um, which aren't in other places. Um, but, you know, at the moment, there is, so, there is so much opera going on. Yeah, it does seem to be a bit of a yeah. renaissance it's, and it's a kind huge, of gold yeah. in it. And there was a bit of a dip, you know, for, for various reasons <laughs> yeah. about 10 years ago. Um, but there's always been a great operatic tradition here. And then you've got things like the Wexford Opera Festival, yeah. which is amazing. It's like world class. They do really interesting stuff. Um, but it's if I, I mean, I wonder what it'd be like if there was like a continental style opera house here, which had like a repertory of things, which, which you know, is, is great, but can also not be the best way of doing things. Sometimes they're doing these productions for years and years and they're not, they've got no life to them. You might have amazing singers, but they're not cutting edge and they're just these kind of things they trot out year after year. Okay. I mean, not, lots of them are incredible, of course, and the music's incredible. Um, it's just a yeah, different kind of different world. But it'd be great to have an opera house too, but you know, can't, <laughs> can't win them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of, you know, you talk about, you know, the how opera costs as much as it does and you know you need people there they're used to going there you've done a little bit in terms of breaking that down mm. uh, including the maddest idea arguably of all time trying to do a three person version of Die Mouse, which I happen to have the crack with you yeah, on yeah. like do you think there are ways to make it more accessible make yeah. it, make people more keen to take mm. a risk on it maybe absolutely I mean so yeah the Fledermaus four years ago fantastic we just messed around with this fun piece of operetta and made it into a fun thing it was great. <laughs> um, and then other things like, so this year, um, well, so we started, let's say, start last year, um, we wrote this short opera for Coco Opera House. And that was with my friend Lily Ackerman, who wrote an incredible libretto. Um, Connor Hanrati directed it. Um, and that, yeah, we just, we, we, we created this sort of site-specific piece, which was in the foyer of the Opera House. And the smallest, kind of the smallest possible opera you can imagine there were three singers and two musicians right. I mean you could probably go once you could probably go one <laughs> singer one musician if you had to but you know there was a, it was like a, there was a cast and there was a bit of an, a band you know um, and it was short 30 minutes um, and it was about two hoovers who were a sort of love affair and then a floor polisher comes in and sort of changes one of their lives um, so it's completely bizarre but it was in, it was just great fun because you you know, had this great libretto to work from, a great story. But like, so libretto is like the, the words, like the script you work from. And that comes first. And if you have that strong like framework and it's a good, great starting point, you can just make the music work. You know, you can write the right music that it needs, and you can make this most bizarre and like <laughs> stupid sounding story. You can make it just sound amazing because <laughs> you just write some nice music for it, and it works. You know, and and it works dramatically. Um, and then we did this year. We did like a, a sequel uh, called Backstage. So um, the first one was Front of House. Front of House, yeah. Front so of this, House. One, this one's Backstage. Um, it's a very imaginative name. Um, uh, backstage, which was uh, again, Lily wrote this cool libretto where it was like the opera singers um, getting ready in their dressing room before a show. Right. And it was like they had the, they, the, at the top of it, they get the thirty-minute call, and it's thirty minutes long, and uh, they kind of freak out, have a crisis try and run away they meet a ghost <laughs> then the stage manager turns out to be a singer like an opera singer as well and has this big aria um, so it's all very meta and then at the end they like walk out on the stage and the audience like see them walking into lights it's great and so like these are operas but they're kind of you know they're operas in, in so far as um, they're opera singers uh, there's a score there's a libretto 
there's uh, like a small orchestra in a way, there's a band, um, they're singing. It's all sung, there's no speaking. Um, and it's, it's sung in an operatic style, but they're, you know, they're brand new, they're on a small, small budget, uh, they're short, anyone can really enjoy it. Um, you know, there's, there's drawbacks like you can't get so many people in because it's in these smaller spaces. Yeah. Um, so you have that trade-off. When you have a smaller cast and you're doing something in an interesting location, it's, you can't fit as many people in, which is like with site-specific theatre work. Yeah. You, know, you have this kind of trade-off. Whereas you go to like a big house, if you want to fill, it, fill the, like a big opera house, you've got to have a big cast, a big orchestra, and they cost more money, but then you can sell more tickets. So it's always this kind of thing. I don't know, let the producers deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, 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 it's fantastic also because you get to, the audience gets to be so close to the mm. singers. They might be like, you know, as close as we are now, like a yeah. metre away or something. And there are these voices which, you know, the, 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 the bel canto style, it originates from having to fill like a big space unamplified yeah. in the era before amplification. And the result is this incredibly rich, like big tone and big sound. But then it can also, they can also bring that back and you can use that like richness and it can be a very um, focused, controlled kind of thing. So it's not like blowing their heads off. Yeah. But it's this like amazing like concert sound. Um, which sounds fantastic. Given that you have mm. uh, done as much singing as you have, when you look at a setup, they, they say that, you know, that, that operatic style is there to fill those big spaces. Mm. The idea that, you know, the standard West End show now is completely mic'd. Mm. How do you feel of it? That is there any way of undoing that and going back to mm. a style? I mean, you know, with a live mm. band, can you go unamplified still? It's it's hard for I don't know. It's hard for lots of reasons. I mean, partly I think you, people expect to have that <clears throat> the whole experience to be very loud and kind of immersive almost yeah. in sound. Um, you know, you'll have you'll have a small band, but they'll be they're like electric and they're they're playing loudly, and then you want the singers to to be over that and. Mm to be like a big kind of, kind of like a concert, you know, like a rock concert thing. So I don't know, I mean, there's, people do try and do unamplified musicals and things. I think it's, it's hard balancing the singers and the musicians. Mm. It's hard, especially when they're doing, when the, the singers are doing big long runs and they're doing lots of shows a week. Yeah. Um, whereas like opera singers would do maybe two or three shows a week, you know, and they kind of alternate with things. So they've got to rest their voices. Um, I mean, there's, there's also lots of crossover between opera and, musicals and some singers do both um, and there's some, some musicals which are kind of more operatic like you know, Les Mis probably yeah. um, good example so there's the crossover but I mean and then also like the type of singing some, some, types, of, some types of singing you want in a musical you, you, you kind of have to sing quietly and you get a great kind of quality of intimacy and stuff but yeah I mean it's, it's amazing having, not having mics it's great but like for example when we did Oedipus um, three years ago in, in the Abbey uh, directed by Wayne Jordan and written by um, we thought about having amplification for the singers and <clears throat> that, so there was like um, 13 a chorus of 13 people and we thought about it and I mean, it would have been difficult to do and costly and time consuming to get right <clears throat> but ultimately we thought now we'll just kind of keep it acoustic and make people listen and in the end it, it, it really worked because you know, if you, if you, you would have had to mic everyone, you would have had to mic the actors talking as well. And it kind of drew people in, you know, you, you adjusted to that level of sound. Um, and you could still hear it. And also, like, you have, when you have 10 people singing together, 
it's like natural sure. amplification, you know, and, and a great acoustic. In and so, well. I mean, is there a thing there where decisions like that start to impact on the overall aesthetic of a production? Then that you know yeah. that if we if we're to introduce mics here, like you say, yeah. we'll need it for the actors as well. That it, it yeah. kind of fundamentally changes it's, the feel it's of a, it. I, it's, I mean, it's a whole like art form to, to mic a show and that kind of stuff. You need dedicated people. Like I, I don't have an, that much experience in it to be honest. Right. Um, just use we use some mics in some shows, like we have in Hamlet, uh, which we're doing just now. Um, I have a couple of mics on some of the axes for some of the bits, and it's it's very it's going to very subtle, like just a little bit. Hmm. Um, that works pretty well. But if you're going to mic a whole show, you need like you know a dedicated team just to do that. And that, I mean, they have that in the big musicals. Sure, they, they can they can do that. You talked a bit earlier on about working from a libretto and then taking mm. it up and you build on the music from yeah, there. Yeah. Is that how you like to do it? I mean, I'd love to talk a bit about where where it comes from from you. How do you mm. go from not having any music for a show to then yeah. having music for a show. I mean, it's always it's always different. I I I don't have one way of doing things. There's okay. lots of different things. So, you know, if you're doing a play, it's, it's, it's the script, right? It's usually the script. Like a traditional play, there's a script which might be Shakespeare or it might be new, um, and you'll have conversations with the director usually um, and other designers maybe. Um, they might send you some references and talk about what, what it's going to be like. You might do some preparatory work in advance, but then ultimately, ultimately I mean, it usually happens in the room. I mean, it's, it's sometimes a bit different. Like, for example, Oedipus, um, we had finished basically all the music before going to rehearsal. Okay. Um, it's just a certain way of that, that me and Wayne worked together, Wayne Jordan. Um, we, kind of, we knew the singers we had because uh, we had auditioned them all. Um, we knew what kind of music we needed. And it was kind of music that needed a bit of time to write and we needed to work on it together as well. Sure. So that was finished before we went in, which is pretty cool. Um, then we just had to learn it, which is a whole other story. <laughs> um, but uh, so for, for, for Hamlet, for example, just now, kind of just wrote it as, as, as we went because, um, you, you, you know, you need to be, I find I need to be in the room and understanding what the production is like and what the energy is and the... It's about getting the temperature mm. of the room a bit. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But then, you know, you can, you can influence that with, with what you do as well, but you're kind of being influenced at the same time. It's just like a kind of um, two-way thing all, all, all the time. Um, I mean, sometimes you use stuff you have already. Sometimes you just you try something out and then you make something else. It's just kind of, yeah. But then, I mean, opera, opera is different because um, the singers want a score to learn the music from and the musicians as well. It's, just diff- it's a different way around of doing things. So then... The, the way we've done it is they wrote the uh, Lily writes the words um, sends them to me yeah. uh, I'll write the score and we do a bit of back and forth as well um, I'll send her bits that I'll, I'll kind of do like a I'll, I'll sing it in for her so she knows what it sounds like um, and she'll say oh maybe bring this word out a bit more maybe we'll change that line a little bit um, but then the score is done and then we go into rehearsals learn it usually as quick as possible yeah. and, then, and then stage it so it's kind of the other way around from theatre where you know, yeah. you'll um, have the words then you'll stage it and then you'll put the music in it um, so, so yeah it's, 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 it's nice doing the different the different um, types of thing um, because it just keeps it interesting and is, is there a method that you prefer or I mean in terms of how it changes in terms of whether you're you know does it feel different if you're composing for a dance show say versus mm. theatre or, or how does that how does that alter? Yeah. Um, it is different. I mean, one of the big differences, uh, I mean, not always, but often, theatre pieces have more 
text. Sure. Than dance pieces. That's, that's sometimes a blurred line, you know. Sometimes you get a lot of movement in theatre and a lot of text in dance. But um, generally, uh, you don't have to worry about hearing the words in yeah. a dance piece. <laughs> so we did, done two ballets with Ballet Island now. Now they're not entirely original ballets, they're both like reworkings of existing ones. But the one we did last year, which was Giselle, um, we kind of recomposed most of the music from the like, first half of the show. Um, and that was quite interesting because it was kind of like, like the, the choreographer, he had a, an idea of what, he had, what the story would be like and what he needed. Uh, and then I'd write music and then he'd kind of come back to me. Um, and that, you know, they didn't have to worry about the text, didn't have to worry about hearing the actors or anything. It just needed to tell the story in a way. That's interesting. I mean, that's ballet. That's a whole other way. Whereas, you know, when you're working with contemporary dance, um, often, sometimes they'll create the movement without any music at all. And then you kind of bring something to it or you'll do it at the same time. Like this time last year, we were working on a girl song with um, Emma Martin. And we just re, uh, we re-looked at that a couple of months ago and it went to Holland, which was fun. Um, and that, I was, I was just in the room all the time with them and I would like play some things while they were rehearsing and we'd kind of work on it and keep going and then we kind of eventually get to what it is. You just kind of build up the layers and make it into the thing. Um, and you don't, yeah, you don't have to worry about hearing the words. You don't have to um, allow space. I mean, you don't have to allow space for the story so much, which is, which is quite liberating in a way. Um, you know how like theatre and writing and plays, it's all about like the story and mm. the dramaturgy and the narrative and stuff. Whereas in dance, it's, it's just a bit, it's more abstract, you know? So as a musician, that suits me perfectly because, you know, I don't go to a concert and think, oh, what was that violinist thinking? Sure. Or what does it mean? Um, so it's, you can just kind of make something that, that you kind of instinctively knows, you, you instinctively know works, it sounds good, it looks good, it works together. Is it more writing with your heart than with your head than a bit? Is it more about feeling? I guess so. It's, well, it's more just, yeah, it's, it's not like necessarily emotional feeling, but it's kind of feeling what, what's right. You know, you kind of know when something is wrong. Right. <laughs> and then you think, right, how can I change that? What, what can I play there instead? Or um, how can we time this cue to go with that you've kind until of t- it works? You've yeah. kind of touched on that a couple of times, mm. about, you know, working and refining until it, mm. until it works. And mm. it kind of, it sounds more of the language of a mm. sculptor than I would have mm. expected it to. Mm. That you're kind of taking away, yeah, you're chiseling yeah. away the marble that doesn't need to be yeah, there that's it, to yeah. leave the, you know, the figure of David yeah. behind. Yeah. Does, does that feel like a... Yeah, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty accurate, actually. I mean, yeah, sometimes you're kind of building things up, you know, you'll start with just like one note and you'll add another thing. Or sometimes you'll have way too much and you're kind of taking it away. Um, but it's just that process of doing it again and again. Um, so with a play, it's great to just... Have loads of have loads of runs at different scenes and things, and try different things with it, and then runs of the whole show as well, obviously. Um, and then you, and also then you get the whole like arc of the thing, mm. and how it all works together. You mm. mentioned a minute ago about kind of you know maybe playing along in a rehearsal room mm. or in a dance studio, or whatever. Mm. Can we talk about how many instruments you play? Well, can I mean pl- play like playing well is probably a different story. Okay, um, but so I play because I play you know so I play a bit of violin and viola. They're basically the same thing, right? Just different sizes, um, and a bit of piano. And then you know, piano can you can play the keyboards, um, or you can I can play like the piano accordion, which is also a bit like a piano. And then um, I can't really play the guitar very well. I can play a few chords, sure. Um, 
than the ukulele, but that's not really a real instrument. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a toy, but it's great fun. Um, play a bit of recorder, just from like growing up and that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, random percussion things, but like, that's, that's about it. And then yeah, I can sing, I can sing a few notes. Not very well, not today. Do you also <laughs> collect strange instruments though sometimes? I do, I haven't, I kind of got out of the habit of doing it. I did for a while. Um, I had this um, Appalachian dulcimer thing, which was pretty cool. Um, I don't even know where it's to like begin a, with what that might be. It's like a kind of lap guitar thing, <laughs> three strings. Um, yeah, I did get into that for a while, and yeah, not not so much now. <laughs> I've, I've, I have a recollection of a theremin at some point. Oh yeah, I had like a, a miniature theremin thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a self assembly kit from Japan. That's fun. Of, of course, yeah. I yeah. love it. It makes me so happy. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit then about the difference when we're in the realm of sound design rather than strictly speaking composition mm. and how closely linked the two are or or not well it's yeah it's a it's kind of one of those i mean it's quite it's complicated i mean from what i understand in for example if you're working in the uk in a in a largest theater traditionally there would be a composer and a sound designer and the composer would be the person writing the kind of tunes the melodies the songs and the music which maybe you'll have in scene changes, maybe it'll, there'll be numbers and things. And then the sound designer would be the person who uh, maybe puts also like sound effects in, who then deploys that music which the composer has done, um, it puts it into the production. And it's kind of more in terms of like maybe the, the technology side of things. Sure. Um, I mean, I think partly in recent years because of like techno technological developments, it's quite easy to, it's not easy, but it's, the technology is more available to to do that yourself to, to like one person to do that you don't need as much personnel to make that happen and then also you know with like budgets and things like that here in in ireland it's generally one person there's generally one person who is um responsible for all the kind of sound stuff like anything that comes out of the speakers or comes out of all the people sing or the instruments play um so when like working here it's generally composition and sound design that's the kind of title you have right but i don't really i don't really see it as a separate like, let's say let's say the sound design was purely like sound effects based um like thunder and lightning that kind of thing i would still see that as like a, a musical element i wouldn't see like it as separate to something where you're writing notes because you're still creating something that has to sound good and sound right um and it still has to kind of work musically and it has to work rhythmically it has to be the right pitch and it has to be all those kind of things um like like i've made pieces of music which are purely sound you know which are purely like recorded sound of, of things that aren't like musical things but that's kind of all the same for me that's all the same type of stuff so i don't i don't really see it as a different thing for myself like i think in, in hamlet i'm down as composition and sound design sometimes you're down as just sound design but you're actually composing loads of music as right. well um sometimes yeah, sometimes you're a dance composer, but you're doing a bit of everything else. Um, and sometimes it's great when you get to work with someone else as well, and you get to collaborate with them. But usually, just it's not the budget for that, and you just do it yourself. Do you enjoy the collaborative nature of it, or would you rather just be, you know, sitting at home at your piano, banging out notes? Yeah. Well, I do. I do enjoy the collaboration of it, um, but I also enjoy sitting at home, banging notes on the piano. Um, it's it's a bit of both is, is good. Like when you're, when you're composing a piece, 
Um, I've been lucky enough this, this, these last couple of years to actually get a few like, commissions for choirs and things like that. And that's fantastic. And that is, you know, it's, a, it's an open brief. They say, we need 10 minutes of music for this choir to sing. And you can do whatever you want. It's fantastic. You get to write yourself. You get to do it. But then, you know, when you're working with a play, you have to work with other people. And the director usually has quite a strong vision of what they want. So you need to work with them. And you have to work in the room. And you have to work with actors. You have to teach them the music. You have to get stuff. But the, both ways are really interesting. And they're, they're really different. And there's things you can't do when you're working on your own. And there's things you can't do when you're working mm. with other people. But you can also, there's lots of things you can do. Like this, like in Hamlet, um, got to work again with the great Chair Kelly. Yes, indeed. Um, incredible man, incredible voice. Um, we, so we, we first time we worked together was on Twelfth Night. Yes. Um, with Wayne Jordan. And he was playing the part of Feste, who kind of sings all the songs. And it was great, because I had written the songs before, but then uh, most of the songs, he came in and he like, interpreted them and added his own things to them and we kind of developed them and changed them a little bit and then one of the, some of them we actually like wrote together in the room which was really fun and then Oedipus again he sang that and he kind of added his own thing to that and then in Hamlet again he's, he actually sings quite a lot in the production he's um, quite a unique performer yeah, yeah he's, he's incredible yeah it's I, I, I mean I love you can't him. replace him in the yeah, show you know? he's, he's quite unique and it's, yeah. the, it's he does he, he's kind of surprising mm. in that he's a, he's a big dude yeah. and then has this um, incredibly sweet and kind of almost yeah. light voice as yeah, well incredible. And, and just a great musical intelligence as well yeah. and so in this we kind of you know I kind of wrote some things and we I gave him some things but then he just improvises a lot you know and he, so it's, it's a bit of a blurred line where my role as composer ends and his as performer begins because he's, he's, he's taking it on as well but you, you can trust him to do that you know yeah. he's He's good and like he's improvising, but he'll 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 do it similar every night. Yeah. But it's great because it has that that liveness and freshness. It's not like it has to be really scored, and it, it's not something I could have written down in music like that. You know, so it's it's just a thing you create in, in rehearsal. Talk to me a little bit about working with choirs, both in the context mm. of a traditional choir setting, um, and then also employing like you know choral vocal work on stage in, in theatre mm. pieces. Yeah, um, choirs choirs are great. Um, it's quite something. Like I've done a lot of choral singing and a bit of choral directing as well. So I kind of, yeah, I know what it's like to, to be in a choir and, and perform choral music. It's a very particular type of music, especially if it's like, you know, a cappella music unaccompanied without instruments. Um, there's a certain way you need to write for the voices and there's a certain way that, like they, with the pitch, you know, you have the, the choir needs to be able to hold the pitch and pitch their notes from other people because the voice is like such a particular type of instrument. You can't just like, like on a saxophone or something, you put your fingers in a certain place, you blow in a certain way, you it get is that what note. It is, yeah. You don't have to picture that note. But when you're singing, you have to kind of imagine the note before you sing it in a way, you know? You need to have a kind of mental relationship to that pitch, mm. which is a difficult thing to develop and you, you know, needs to need to train in that. Um, so it, it, it is a challenge when you're working with people who don't have that experience. Yeah. And they have, like, so in Oedipus, 30 people in incredible voices uh, great singers all with different levels of like choral background and we had to make them into a choir and they got there and it was amazing um, uh, it was just it's like a lot of practice and a lot of working together to make it work and like all pulling together and then yeah I mean often you, you need to do like a choral thing in a in a play as well um, it's hard when you don't have a band with it that's hard because singing without instruments is a, is a whole thing it's a yeah. whole other thing and it's it's not like a thing that you do 
that people do that much or it happens that much in like general culture you know usually you know you've got a guitar you've got a piano or something you sing a song uh, or you sing a song on your own unaccompanied but singing with where like everyone everyone is like the band and um the music is everyone it's not anything else it's not like the music and the singers it's the people <laughs> the choir is the music yeah it's like I just, it's just a weird thing but yeah it's, it's very satisfying and it's something incredible because also that relationship of words and music it's so embodied in choral music because the words are the music that's it mm. you know <laughs> um, like a choir singing a word the word becomes this like sound you know but it's also got that meaning as a word just like this intrinsic relationship. Do you find working in that choral style with a company of actors then can be a useful tool in terms of building the ensemble and how they play with each other and, and play off each other then? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, it's a bit... I mean, in some types of choral music, it's just kind of... They need to just be in time and, and listen to each other and follow the director and sing together. Um Whereas in other ways, you, in other types of music, you'd need to like be aware of what everyone's doing all the time, which is probably more like being in an acting ensemble. Mm. And um, like when you're on stage acting, you have to you have to be listening all the time, not just for your cue. You know, but you've, got to, you've got to be aware of where everyone is, and you've got to be aware of everything at the same time, mm. which is a bit like playing an instrument, really. Um, yeah. As you look back on some of the shows you've made, is it fair to say that? you have a talent for thinking outside the box. Like You've done a few mad things over the years. Mad and brilliant. Um, are there ones that stand out for you? Um, yeah. Um, some, I mean, for example, um, again, four years ago, um, we did this piece called Harp. This is the one I really yeah. wanted to talk about. Um, which was on the Samuel Beckett Bridge. Yeah. Uh, that's like the opening fringe festival bonanza or something. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty mad. Um, I don't know. We just got this idea. What if, what if we like made it into a harp and played it, uh, and then developed into this? We'll have like sing. We'll have a choir, massive choir, and soloists, and a band, a brass band, and drummers, and we'll like make it come to life in a big light show, and then it just kind of. We thought this this never happened, and we somehow got like a little bit of funding to make it happen. Um, people were really behind it, and it, it just kind of snowballed, and it happened. It's kind of amazing, and it's, yeah, it's mad. And then like thousands of people came out to see it, um, and it was like one night only, and then it was gone, and it was like this. <laughs> did that really happen? It was absolutely bizarre. Um, and yeah, just like composed this like thirty-minute choral score thing for it. And then Owen Fuere um, narrated like this introduction for it, which was great. And then there was like dancers, big lights, light show, and big amplification. It was it was strange, but yeah, I suppose it's because because all all the people around, like you know Connor Hanrity, he kind of, he kind of drove it forward, and, and Matt Smith was producing it as well. And yeah, there's people who kind of make things happen. Mm. Um, if it'd just be me, there'd be no way, but, you know. <laughs> Um, and the fringe were really behind it. Um, yeah, I still can't really believe it happened, and I don't think I'd attempt it in any way now. It's just, so many things go wrong, and also it was all live, and yeah. it was outdoors with like live amplification um, of like about a hundred different people across a giant bridge, and with like rudimentary like click tracks to keep them together. Uh, it was a miracle that it. I mean, it came apart a little bit in the middle of it, but it, not that much. 
you like when people do big outdoor gigs half of it's pre-recorded and it's you know, mm. just singing along because it's just if you want to make it sound good you can't do that outdoors with like live mics but we somehow <laughs> gave it a go and it was okay I love yeah. it I love it so I mean in terms of ambitions and looking to the future are there still challenges you'd like to take on mountains you'd like to tackle what's yeah. what's what, what given the broad scope of the work you've made mm. to date is there anything out there that you're going that's one thing I'd really like to sink my teeth into oh, God, I don't know um, I mean every piece like is is a interesting challenge you know an interesting thing and you, you kind of almost started thinking I don't know what I'm going to do mm. how I'm going to do this and you find a way of doing it and you teach yourself some new way um, like this this show just now Hamlet um, it's almost like cinematic cinematic score for it um, but you know the difference between cinema and theatre is that theatre's live mm. and actors speak at different speeds every night you know so you can't just write a score for it and press play yeah. at the top of the show it's got to work with the liveness of it and also it's got to be the right volume <laughs> so you can hear the actors over the top of it which I hope, I hope is the case um, so I had to work out ways of doing that and it's almost like I kind of took ideas from scoring like video games and things where because um, these incredibly, incredible like scores for computer games now where you can be like walking through a forest and then you'll meet someone and the music will change and then things will happen but it has to be able to work and develop at the right speed that you're playing the game so I kind of used ideas borrowed from that so that was a really interesting challenge uh, I didn't think I would be able to do it and I think I've done it but I'll let the audience judge for themselves. Um, <laughs> so, like, yeah, so, I mean, there are, lots, there are lots of new challenges to do. I mean, I'd love to do, like, I love writing the, the small operas, and we're doing another opera in Cork next year, actually, which is a little bit bigger, but still fairly small, but it would be great to also do, like, a big opera with yeah. a, a whole orchestra and big cast. But it's not necessarily... That wouldn't be, like, better than the other ones. Mm. It's just a slightly different thing. Or it would be, um, yeah, great to do more bigger plays but I love doing smaller plays too and um, I've done I've done slightly larger dance shows with like bigger casts and also very small things too and sometimes the smaller ones are like the more satisfying because um, you can really really focus it and get, exa- get it exactly right um, it's just it's just I enjoy I just enjoy doing, enjoy doing the work enjoy doing the um, variety of different things and just like to continue doing that in the future <laughs> well, speaking of the work, unusually mm. for us, we're actually going to play out with one of your tracks from the current production of Hamlet, which I'm yeah. a, a beautiful piece. This is uh, Ophelia's Lament, am I right? Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about the piece and how it came about, mm. and then we'll we'll play it out as we finish? Well, the the version you're going to hear in this is that you, won't, you wouldn't actually hear that in its entirety in the show. Um, the the way I did things was I recorded lots of things uh, which would work like lots of different layers of things and then you can kind of use each layer separately. So in the play, you never really hear it all together because it would be kind of almost too, I don't know, too satisfying or something. So you hear, I mean, it's not necessarily her theme or anything, but um, you do hear some of this music in one of the early scenes with Ophelia and Laertes. And then um, later on, as, as her story progresses, you hear more of it and then, then it kind of peels back and you hear little bits of it and things. Um, so it's just kind of, yeah, it's slightly expressing the, the, the kind of story of that character in the play um, which is you know a very tragic and terrible end for that character um, 
but if yeah, if you go and see the play, you will hear bits of this music in different layers coming through at different times. Fantastic, Tom Lane. Thank you so much for <laughs> Thank joining me. Thank you very me. much. So there you have it, the great Tom Lane. Wonderful to chat to Tom. Just such a nice guy and such an interesting character and such a different take on his side of the business, I guess. So brilliant to have that chat with him. And look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings-on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, they have Two Pints and Scotties out on the road. They've also got The Lost O'Casey from Anu as part of the festival, The Patient Gloria, Richard III on its way, and Rathmines Road. Up at the gate, it's our own Ruthie in Hamlet, which has just 
opened and is already completely sold out for the run so if you've missed the boat on that my apologies maybe go and see if you can organize some returns for yourself at the gaiety theater it's the full monty at the o'reilly theater it's everyone's fine with virginia wolf at the lear uh, serious money coming up the great carol churchill play which i performed in many years ago really looking forward to seeing the gang at the lear tackle that at the mermaid it's the may by marina carr starring rise productions regular rachel o'burn and they've also got how to catch a star at smock Ali, it's the Misfits, Banaha and St. Nicholas. Then at the Civic, they have the May. I shall be there this evening to go and see it. Worth the brilliant Rachel. Uh, at the Pavilion Theatre, it's Portrait of the Artist from Rough Magic. At Driet, they have Home Theatre Ireland, which looks like an incredible project of so many brand new plays being performed in people's homes and all over the place. It's going to be a really interesting one there. At the Viking in Clontarf, they have The Boys. And at Bewley's Cafe Theatre, it's Oscar Wilde's The Happy Prince. Uh, project is full of Dublin Theatre Festival shows. Go and check it their website to see what's on there and then as we head south to cork at the everyman they have the collector and shawleys and at the town hall in galway our own aaron monaghan starring in druid's production of richard iii and that is followed by cracks and that touring production of the may at the lime tree there's three hail mary's the polish arts festival on trail is down there and cracks and at the hawkswell in sligo they have and thank you Deepwater Rambler and Tea Dance and up north at the Lyric in Belfast it's Good Vibrations and then they'll have Double Cross coming up soon so that is us, that is episode 47 in the books, we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week (laughs) 